Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Colourgraph. And this week, we're going to visit two great capital cities at the very beginning of the 18th century. Who owns London? This gigantic question was the starting point for Leo Hollis's latest book, Inheritance, The Lost History of Mary Davies. Researching it sent him on a journey deep into the personal history of one remarkable woman, her position as an heiress, her failing mental health, her religious conversion, and a tumultuous journey to Rome and back. When she was six months old, Davy's father died of the plague, and she inherited the Manor of Ebury, a parcel of land that today includes some of the most expensive real estate on the planet, Park Lane and Mayfair, the best properties on the Monopoly board for a reason. Mary inherited the land at the very moment that London was beginning to expand exponentially. By the early 18th century, it would be the largest city in the world. What was swampy farmland in the 1660s was soon to be transformed into elegant streets and stylish squares, vastly increasing its value. In recovering Mary's story and telling it for the first time, Hollis reveals the lamentable status of women in this period, in particular their lack of agency over their own lives and their vulnerability medically, legally and socially. Leo Hollis is the author of two acclaimed history books, The Phoenix, The Men Who Made Modern London, and Stones of London, as well as the international bestseller Cities Are Good For You. He speaks globally on urbanism, technology and the future of cities. He teaches an annual course on 18th century London at the V&A. So I would like to welcome you to Travels Through Time, Leo. Hello. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about your um, fascinating book, Inheritance, The Lost History of Mary Davies. And before we get into the details, I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit about yourself, your professionally. I know you've written other books, your, your interests. Yeah, I would say uh, I was a historian and an urbanist. I'm uh, in some ways obsessed by cities. Uh, started off thinking about London and uh, in particular London in the 17th century. So my first book was about the rebuilding of the city um, after the Great Fire. And then my second book called The Stones of London um, uh, looks at the whole history of London through 12 buildings. After that, in some ways, I uh, uh, made a bit of a change and wrote a book called Cities Are Good For You, which was looking much more at the contemporary sort of situation of uh, urban life in the 21st century and looking at it from a number of different sort of angles. But I started sort of thinking about that again when I was uh, starting a new book. And I started off with this question of who owns London? And uh, this is how I uh, came across the story of Mary Davies. And so were you literally looking in an archive and um, you came across her name or how, how did you come across her? 
No, interestingly enough, I mean, the, the question of um, who owns London, I think, is an incredibly important one in terms of sort of the way that the contemporary city uh, sort of functions. Uh, and I, it soon became incredibly clear to me that, that, that we talk a lot about who, uh, you know, the buildings and the roads and the spaces um, uh, of the city. We very rarely talk about land. And so, you know, who owns the land uh, in some ways is is really the sort of power within a city. And the contemporary story is 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 a fascinating one. But I everybody knows the story of of uh, in some ways the great estates of London. And um, one of the the most famous great estate, obviously, is the Grosvenor estate. And and the Grosvenor family, uh, the Dukes of Westminster, have been seen as some of the richest people in Britain. Uh, and that's all to do with their property within the sort of West End of London, the sort of Mayfair area and going down towards the Thames at Pimlico and, and Belgravia. Um, many London histories tell the story of a young girl called Mary Davies who married at 12 to uh, Sir Thomas Grosner. And that's kind of where the story ends, that that's where the record seems to sort of vanish. Um, what I discovered was, um, you know, the story that's told or, or, or that existed beyond that particular sort of pinprick, that sort of fact, um, which uh, really got to the heart of all the questions that I was thinking about, you know, who owns London today? Yeah. And um, I wonder, so this is the, the story, as you say, this is the story of a woman who has not really been written about before. And um, as you beautifully um, describe in your book, that I love that phrase, the pinpricks of evidence, um, you know, and there's the odd letter that she wrote, um, but really very little information about her. Um, and I wonder um, if you could talk a bit about this, the issues of recovering um, female history, which often is, uh, you know, females in history are often very muted and they don't have, they don't leave a lot of evidence behind them for, for, for their life. And I wonder if you can just talk a bit about that sort of broadly, how you how you manage that. Yes, I mean, there's, there's an essential uh, tradition in sort of feminist history of reclaiming lives. And, and in many ways, you know, I'm, uh, you know, in some ways, a student of uh, Antonia Fraser or Sheila Robotham or all these great, great historians uh, who've sort of, in some ways, excavated and sort of given ones the tools to 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 look at uh, women's lives. What's interesting with with this story is the relationship between uh, a woman's body and land. So the the idea of the heiress and as soon as uh, this young woman inherits land and she inherits this land very early on in her life she becomes a commodity and as a result uh, her whole life is determined by uh, the the rising and falling fortunes of this plot uh, and that's exactly what my story is about yeah so that speaks to the female status which came across very much in your book as, as a possession of her male relatives so initially her father and then um and then later on her husband and that seemed to me that it was it was in that way that the evidence remained about her is that is that correct yeah very much the the main records of her life are are, are land deals um you know there's very little that uh, was written in her in her own hand um and in many ways the major events of her life are reported 
Um, so you 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 don't get to uh, hear her own voice. Uh, you sort of get the sort of sense that, that that her life was a sort of series of silences in which she's desperately trying to sort of get some kind of sort of sense of agency um, about her life, um, but she's never able to write it down. Uh, and so, yeah, as 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 a historian going back, you're looking at land contracts. You're trying to sort of picture a, a an inner life if you like from from uh, sort of business dealings and 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 that was absolutely sort of fascinating because you can pick out a kind of an architecture of a life through these documents but you still have to in some way sort of listen to those silences and try and make some kind of uh, sort of judgment because just because we we don't have the record it doesn't mean that these people didn't do anything no of course you know, not. they had full and rich lives and they had all the thoughts that we have but we just don't have access to them so you know it's trying to give um a a, a kind of a, a full panoramic view of, of of somebody through these these very small sort of apertures yeah and i think it'd be really helpful if you could just talk a bit about london and um, the particular area of London that she, where, where the land that she owned was, and, you know, the, the limits, limits of London at this point. So describe to us, because I think that was one of the things in the book that was just so beautiful, when, the way you, you know, you did a sort of imaginary journey of her going around in her carriage as a child. And, and certainly for me, it's something that I, when I'm walking around London, I just find it so difficult to imagine fields and um but you know as your book shows in um the 18th century at the beginning of the 18th century a lot of the places which are now the the very center the very heart of the the sort of what we think of as the center of london were um fields and uh, orchards and so can you talk a bit about that and describe to us where where london had got to absolutely so mary is born in january 1665 um uh uh, she inherits this plot of land when her father dies in the Great Plague six months later. Uh, and this plot of land, essentially, um, which we would know now as sort of Mayfair and Belgravia and Pimlico, was a long way to the west of the city. By that time, really, there was some development that was going on in Piccadilly and St. James's Square was starting to emerge out of uh, uh, sort of basically pasture land um, and hunting grounds but really um, the sort of city kind of petered out at around Trafalgar Square um, to the west uh, and uh, there was some work that was going on around Bloomsbury Square um, but the heart of it really sort of stuck to the Thames um, uh, and and so you had an enclave in Westminster and then you had the, the the sort of city of London. It's almost like sort of two separate cities that were slowly merging into each other. Um, so London was small. It was probably a population of by that time around 300,000 people, maybe 350,000 people. What was going to occur over the lifetime of um, uh, sort of uh, our main character, Mary, was London was going to explode. So you had the Great Fire in 1666, which totally sort of uh, uh, started this this exponential i suppose uh, growth outwards from uh, the old burnt area from the old sort of sort of square mile uh, until you get by the beginning of the uh, 18th century the city has expanded enough to get as far as bond street right to the west 
Um, well, this feels like a good moment to ask you uh, if you could visit a year in history, which year would it be? Well, I'm going to choose 1701. Right at the very dawn of the 18th century. So London is in the midst of this great expansion. And I know <clears throat> we're going to talk a little bit when we get to your first scene, we'll talk more about that. But what uh, what else is happening generally in the country at, at this point? So I think there's always been this, this perpetual debate about whether there was a revolution in the middle of the 17th century. And I would argue that don't look to the sort of 1640s and 50s for the revolution. The revolution took over 50 years and uh, it went from the 1640s to the 1690s. And London was the location for this this bourgeois revolution. And so you get in this one place, political, social, financial, economic transformation on, on a scale that possibly we'd never seen before. London had gone from within a sort of uh, 50 or 60 years from, in some ways, a sort of European backwater to the largest city in the world. It was bigger even than Tokyo by 1701. It had established itself over the last 50 years as the centre of this emerging empire, so a centre of a global trading network, which now went from Calcutta to New Amsterdam to Jamaica. Um, the uh, the ports were starting to fill with with goods from, from all these sort of far shores. Um, and that was transforming the way people were living inside the city. So you get an emerging merchant class that was looking to not only not only were they becoming increasingly wealthy, but they were looking to live and work in completely different ways. And they were also demanding a certain levels of political power. So the political scene was transforming. This was all happening in a very tiny space. You could sort of, in some ways, sort of see, and I try and make the argument that this was the birth of the modern world. Yeah. Within this sort of small, small space. So William and Mary are on the throne. The glorious revolutions happened quite recently and um, Protestantism is very much um, the order of the day. And that's also connected with the city, isn't it? That the religious aspect is connected with the power that the merchants in the city have. Is that... Yes, yeah. I mean, there was there was there was a certain level of that uh, sort of toleration. Um, is that, that that in some ways your money was more important than your beliefs? But yes, William would stay on the throne for at least another year. In seventeen oh one, James the Second dies in uh, Paris. So in some ways, the um, uh, the threat of uh, a challenge from him de decreases, um, and so uh, William is able to sort of push forward with his grand plans as to sort of try and create a, in some ways, a European superpower. Yeah. And of course, crucial to the specifics of London is the Great Fire of London, which had happened in 1666 and had, you know, I mean, if you, if, if there is an upside to it, it did allow the rebuilding of a huge part of the city um, and the modernization of it. So if we could go to your first scene now, I believe that we are in the, the very beating heart of that process. So where are we going? Yeah, so almost like the uh, uh, the beginning of a movie, uh, you know, the uh, camera swoops down and we're going to sort of enter into uh, what's now the completely rebuilt um, sort of city of London. And we are going to land um, uh, at St. Paul's Cathedral, which, uh, unlike everything around it, is still incomplete. 
in fact, it's got uh, at least another 10 years to go. And in 1701, in some ways, the cathedral and its designer, Sir Christopher Wren, is at a sort of a dilemma, at an inflection point in which um, uh, it has been going on for so long now, the sort of rebuilding process, that uh, uh, people have got bored of it, that, that you get an extraordinary account of going to the top of Ludgate Hill from somebody called Ned Ward, who is one of the sort of great sort of journalists, hack journalists of the age. And he's sort of saying he w- he walked up to St. Paul's Cathedral and basically the workmen are doing absolutely nothing whatsoever. And uh, it is just it's just a scandal what's going on here. And this sort of general feeling about St. Paul's by this time is, well, it might never come. You know, the whole place is sort of covered in tarpaulin. There's been a, a crisis about um, the sort of the West Front. So initially they wanted to put, um, you know, sort of incredibly grand columns um, up the front of uh, uh, the cathedral. But because of a, a sort of catastrophe at the quarry, they weren't able to get bits of stone big enough in order to be able to make this. So Wren had to completely reinvent what he was doing. He was also told two years beforehand that you can either afford the front or you can afford the dome, but you can't afford both. Had it gone massively over budget? It had gone massively over budget and Parliament were no longer willing to pay for it. So it's the HS2 of its day, basically. (laughs) That's exactly what it was. He became an MP uh, in order to be able to sort of make his own case within Parliament. Um, And he also started to, he he also sort of said, I'll I'll give up all all my salary, um, put that into the building. Um, He started to sell pictures of uh, a completed St. Paul's with the dome in order to show people, you know, this is what you're going to lose if you don't uh, do this. And he just went ahead and started building the dome without really knowing whether he were going to be able to pay for it or not. An act of extraordinary chutzpah. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's in some ways typical of uh, uh, his whole career of just pushing forward, knowing what he wanted to do and uh, uh, just hoping upon hope that it will all come good in the end. And at the same time, the church is starting to be used. So people are walking into the choir and there are services now and people can start to sort of see what kind of cathedral it's going to be. And so was the was the how did the public feel about it? The sort of local people, were, were, were they just sick of it? Or do you think that there was a feeling that, you know, that Wren was, it was worth going with what Wren wanted to do, that he was a visionary? Well, I think the sort of local people around uh, St Paul's Churchyard were probably sick. They're a whole generation of uh, living in a kind of workshop. Yeah. There was uh, definitely attempts to try and make St Paul's Cathedral the, as it were, the parish church of the nation. Uh, so it was being used for um, sort of victory masses. But also there was an attempt to sort of use it and use that sort of space um, uh, in order to push forward an 18th century version of Anglicanism, a kind of enlightened Anglicanism. So it was a place of, despite its sort of grand design, it was a, it was a place of persuasion and a place of sermonising. Uh, so it represented a kind of modern vision of what 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 Anglicanism could be. Okay, 
Well, I think now that's a very good moment to move on to your second scene because the issue of religion and Anglicanism and Catholicism is extremely pertinent to our heroine, Mary Davies, because she extraordinarily um, converted to Catholicism uh, early on in her married life, didn't she? So can you take us to our second scene and then enlarge on that whole um, story? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we are moving to Paris and the exact dates are the 12th to the 18th of June uh, in the Hotel Castile on uh, the Rue Saint-Dominique in um, Saint-Germain. Um, and uh, we're going to be looking at the particular events over this week. But in order to sort of give some sort of exposition, as uh, I think I sort of said earlier, uh, Mary married at 12. She married Sir Thomas Grosner at 12. Um, uh, they were married for about um, 10, 15 years. Uh, they had a handful of children. Uh, three boys survived and uh, one girl. But when Mary was uh, 35, Sir Thomas died. Um, and um, uh, she became a widow. And as a result, in some ways, she regained her uh, inheritance. So she became uh, in charge of the land that, that Sir Thomas had been looking after through the marriage. Um, and you're right that during their marriage, um, Mary had converted for we, reasons we don't necessarily know to Catholicism. But as a, as, a, as a teenage girl or as a sort of in her early 20s, she had made this extraordinary transformation um, and uh, made this determination um, to to be a Catholic, and we can sort of speculate on why why that is, but it meant that um, she had a chaplain in her household, uh, a man called Ludwig Fenwick. Um, in the weeks after the uh, death of Sir Thomas Grosvenor, it becomes clear that Fenwick has a certain amount of influence over Mary, and very quickly they plot and plan a trip to Europe together, uh, and they go off four or five months later, to um, Paris and then to Rome, and then they come back via Lyon to Paris. And uh, it's in June 1701 that they arrive at uh, the Hotel Castile and our first scene. Right. So my, my only question before you describe the, frankly, extraordinary uh, and very sad, actually, <laughs> events that follow, um, I wanted to know, I mean, this must have been a pilgrimage, mustn't it, in a sense, that this trip to Rome? I think it was. There was um, uh, that year a jubilee, which was something that um, uh, the papacy, about once every 50 years or so, called. It was a way of sort of filling their coffers when they needed to. But um, it was a way of uh, getting pilgrims to come to Rome. They were um, absolved of their sins as long as they paid enough, mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah. Um, and so uh, Mary and Lodovic Fenwick were rushing to um, uh, Rome in order to uh, sort of see the new pope. I also think that they probably stopped off in Paris and stopped off in Paris for some time in order to be close to James II, who was now in exile at Saint-Germain-du-Pré. So there was a sort of certain sense uh, that, that they were going to go and look at the exiled English court. Um, and certainly there were family there that was connected to the court. But they arrived back in Paris. Um, and uh, by this time, Mary is quite unwell. She was sort of showing signs of frailty in Rome. And they had had to stop off 
for uh, a few weeks in Lyon as uh, she was really seriously unwell. Often, they, I think uh, many of the reports sort of say that she was probably mentally unstable at that, at that time. But she had recovered enough to travel and um, uh, made her way to Paris. Once she was there, so she arrived on sort of Sunday night, on Monday she rested. On Tuesday, uh, there were visitors, uh, including a doctor, uh, Dr. Ayres, who was able to prescribe uh, certain sort of medicines. And this included uh, an an emetic or antimony in order to sort of purge and make her sort of vomit up the sort of the bile that was supposedly uh, afflicting her, um, as well as various different forms of opium. Um, one of the visitors that day was Lodwick Fenwick's brother, a man called uh, Edward, who was uh, an ex-officer, a, a sort of fairly dashing person by all accounts, um, who had met Mary a couple of times before they had left for Europe. And he felt that um, there was something there in the relationship, that uh, he felt that, that, that there was a spark that was worth pursuing. Uh, he was a man with no fortune whatsoever. So the idea of catching the eye of a wealthy heiress, a wealthy widow, uh, was certainly something that, uh, that that was worth pursuing. So he had visited on Tuesday. On Wednesday, uh, she was prescribed the emetic and uh, this had disastrous effects that she was violently sick all day. Um, and people became very concerned about her condition. The next day, they tried to dose her with opium. Um, They laced her wine, um, but she was very concerned um, that that, that she was being given another purgative, so she refused it. But on Friday, they were able to uh, sort of dose her with some laudanum, firstly in um, sprinkling it on a couple of poached eggs, uh, and then secondly, even more, I think, surreptitiously, uh, they they had bought a bowl of strawberries and they picked out the stalks of all the strawberries and put in a little bit of uh, a grain of opium into each um, strawberry and put the stalk back on and then handed her the bowl. And she clearly ate some of these strawberries. I think that's an amazing detail to have, the idea of someone inserting grains of opium into a strawberry. It's, it is absolutely extraordinary. And the next day, Mary wakes up in her room and she finds Edward in her bed. And within a matter of hours, they've married. Uh, the, the, the marriage has been conducted by the brother, so Lodvik, and with two servants as witnesses. And so they were now man and wife. And, and is the brother, because I know that he was a monk, wasn't he? Was, so did that mean that he was actually authorised to carry out ceremonies of marriage or or not? Well, this would all be um, uh, things that were unpicked in a later court case. Yeah. So uh, the events, the reason why we have such extraordinary detail about what happened in uh, that hotel is that it is the the raw material of a court case that occurs um, in 1703, where all the witnesses came together uh, and essentially they spent 14 hours deliberating what actually happened in that hotel room. And then finally, the jury made a decision, made a judgment on whether um, uh, Mary and Edward were married or not. And on this, the fate of the whole estate lay. Um, Okay, so before we move on to your third scene, um, 
I would just, just want to talk a little bit about Mary and her illness, um, because obviously in those days, um, medical science, you know, they had absolutely no understanding of mental illness at all. And um, I mean, the list of um, uh, uh, treatments that they gave her, I think would have made anyone almost uh, close to death. You know, they would bleed you. Uh, so if you were feeling weak already, they would then remove um, several pints of blood, which obviously weakens you even further. Can you, I mean, you do hint in the book, you do discuss this a bit that, you know, modern psychologists would have perhaps thought, uh, perhaps thought that she was bipolar uh, or that she suffered sort of psychotic episodes. Would, would that be correct? Yes, very much. I mean, uh, madness is always in in the eyes of the the, the observer, um, you know, it's 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 very difficult to uh, sort of get a uh, you know an, a first hand account of uh, sort of instability during this period. So, what we have is we have lots of people who um, have been watching Mary and are interpreting her actions. Um, and she had shown, um, I think, mental frailty, instability. It's difficult to know what it was um, uh, because the language in the 17th century of madness is so limited. In some ways, the sort of the, the, the language of madness was being invented, was being sort of formulated. So you had melancholia or you had mania. Um, where this sat, where it came from, was also in, in transition. So whether it was... Um, as a sort of imbalance of the humours or whether it came from nerves, which was a brand new thing, or whether it came from the brain, which was also just being cut open for the very first time. This was all up in the air. There was also aspects of, of power and gender um, yes. in being folded into these interpretations of what madness was. You know, in the 17th century, madness was very much a male disease, but in the 18th century, it was slowly becoming uh, a, a kind of sort of a female malady. And then finally, you have a kind of uh, something that, that you know, we have imposed upon the past, which comes from the French philosopher and sort of historian Michel Foucault, which is the idea of the insane as being outside of society and the way that we have confined and so that becomes a process in which you define who is in and who is out and this becomes a, a whole nother way of sort of thinking about insanity so we have these accounts of mary and some of them are traumatic not only the events in the um the hotel in paris but but beforehand though there, there was sort of uh, moments where she tried to escape from um her family estate um, and on one occasion sort of screaming at phantoms and people of, of, of privilege in that she had sort of imagined in her house. And this goes back several years doesn't it? it yes it, go, it, go, it goes back to the sort of uh, sort of 1690s where uh, you know while she was married to Sir Thomas Grosner yeah there are these particular events and it's difficult to say you know, what triggered these or whether they were actually just, you know, manifestations of, of bipolar or uh, even, you know, potentially it could be sort of seen as a, a traumatic form of grief. Um, you know, she lost two boys. She was also a, a woman who was powerless to, you know, take any kind of control over her life. There must have been sort of a mixture of all these things that are coming together. And there's definitely one or two events where you can sort of 
absolutely sort of read a certain kind of um, uh, pathology to. But often it's the kind of slightly more generalised um, ideas of either a mania or a melancholia. Hello, it's Artemis. At Travels Through Time, we're incredibly proud to be partnering with Jordan Lloyd and Colograph. Jordan is one of the world's leading visual historians. Through his excellent craftsmanship, he brings black and white photographs of the past to life in startling colour and clarity. Jordan's extraordinary work, as well as that of his contemporaries, can be found on the website colograph.co. At colorgraph.co, you'll be able to explore the process and history behind the colorization work, but most excitingly of all, you can also buy some of these beautiful photographs as museum-grade fine art prints. They make an unusual and striking present for that friend or family member of yours who loves the past, and they're an excellent addition to any room. Whether it's a colorized photograph of the US Capitol building from 1846, or a candid shot of the Beatles from 1964, you're pretty sure to find something that enchants you. I know I certainly have many times. It's hard to explain really over audio just how cool these prints are, so I encourage you to have a look for yourself at colorgraph.co. What's more, Travels Through Time listeners get 10% off when they enter the code TTT at the checkout. Sure, it's very, very sad. She was obviously a very vulnerable person and so could you take us to the to our third scene now, please, which is just um, a couple of months later? Absolutely. So we're going to go to the um, the 12th of August. So literally uh, sort of two months later, sort of. So Mary escapes Paris, basically. She leaves Paris um, uh, with one of her servants and leaves uh, both Fennec brothers in Paris. Uh, and she rushes back to her mother's house, who ha- uh, lived on uh, Millbank, so just by Westminster. And she swears that uh, she never married Fenwick, that, that that she saw no books, she saw spoke no words, and that no marriage ever took place. Inevitably, uh, Fenwick follows on and starts to behave as if he is now the new owner of the plot of land. So uh, he goes around the tenants and he sort of says, either um, uh, you pay me the rents or you you will be evicted. Um, and on the 12th of August, he turns up at um, his supposed mother-in-law's house and demands to see his wife and demands his conjugal rights, as he calls them. And this causes a huge dilemma within the family, what to do with Mary, because clearly she's in the house, but nobody's um, uh, coming out to sort of see Fenwick's lawyer there. So the lawyer goes away and he comes back the next day and he sticks on the railing, a legal ruling to say that uh, Mary has to turn up to one of the sort of one of the courts, a religious court, but at the end of the month. So it's decided that um, that day that Mary has to leave London, that she is uh, either she would have to sort of stand in court, actually, uh, there was a threat of kidnapping if she sort of stayed in London. So she left London uh, in a in a rush um, and went up to uh, her family or her uh, her husband's uh, estate up in Chester. And as far as we know, never came back to London again. That was, you know, in some ways, the last time that she would sort of see her estate, would sort of see, uh, you know, uh, her mother in her mother's house down by the Thames. And over the course of the next two or three years, uh, the case would be go through three or four different courts. 
And so there was the the first uh, case, which would go through the Queen's Bench, which is uh, in Westminster Hall. And uh, that's the the case that we have of a verbatim account of. And that's where we get all the details about what happened in um, the hotel in Paris. I probably won't tell you what uh, the the result of that. No, no, no. No, no, no. You have to read the book if you want to find out what happens. Um, but so that left, I mean, Mary was obviously incapacitated to to a certain degree. And as you say, she went up to Chester and actually lived for quite a long time after that. But I'd like you to just talk a little bit about her mother, Mrs. Tregonwell, because she was sort of left in charge of um, dealing with the court cases. And, um, and she was a, a real person to be reckoned with wasn't she yes i mean mr gromwell originally miss davies was widowed herself at 21 her husband had died in the great fire and she looked after the estate until um she was able to marry the 12 year old mary off to uh, sir thomas Grosvenor. she was a formidable woman i mean i think uh, again one of these women who who don't make it into the history books but absolutely deserves our attention. You imagine as a 21-year-old, having lost your husband in the Great Plague, you're months away from the Great Fire, and you're dealing with everything. Uh, I mean, I think it's deeply admirable. What happens in, in, in 1701, so sort of, you know, sort of 30 or 40 years later is, yes, Mary comes back to her house and is then sent off to um, Grosvenor. And Firstly, Mr. Gronwell, and then the guardians of the Grosvenor estate. So a sort of a, a separate group of men, it has to be sort of said, uh, uh, Cheshire gentry did everything they could to protect uh, Mary's inheritance. And they are the ones who pushed forward on um, on the court case and all these different fronts. Uh, and in some ways, Mr. Gronwell was... Her interests were possibly Mary, but certainly the estate, uh, while the uh, the Grosvenor Guardians, their interests were, again, you know, possibly for um, uh, Mary's welfare, but really so that the um, the family could hold on to the estates and the children would inherit uh, the lands themselves. And that's essentially what uh, they pushed forward. So you have a series of court cases, and, and, and I won't tell you the results, but at the end of the court cases, the family hold on to the estate, but the uh, the end result is that uh, Mary is declared a lunatic, and she spends yeah. the last 25 years of her life in care, essentially, under the under the wardship of, of, of the guardians. And how common do you think this kind of story was uh, in that? period you know how how often do you think it happened that i mean not necessarily that that the, the mental health issues but that young women who were wealthy or were heiresses were taken advantage of in this way well i mean it's 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 in some ways it's a, it's just a, a statistical question in that there were more women who weren't married than were married at any given moment and they could have been heiresses or widows despite the fact that you know history tells us that it was all one thing i think there are so many examples so you can take mary's story but you can also take the story of lady russell whose uh, husband died uh, was executed um uh, in uh, the 1680s as part of the rye house plot and she decided after her husband died is that she would have nothing to do with the court but would deal with only with lawyers and builders 
and she became the heiress that built that whole area around the sort of British Museum. And so if you imagine that it's it's happening in these two places incredibly closely, it could have been happening absolutely everywhere. You know, one of the people that her son marries was, was the daughter of another heiress who, who owned a large section of Streatham. So certainly there were widows, yeah. there were unmarried uh, women who were working, managing, building, constructing the city. Yeah, really interesting story. There is there is one more question that um, that I have to ask you, which is if you could have picked up a memento from any of those three places that we visited today, what would it be? It's just before the second event, which is that despite the fact that Mary inherited her plot of land, um, her, her farms at the age of six months, throughout her life, she only ever signed one land contract. So despite being, you know, this extraordinary heiress and property owner, it was only in the short brief months between her husband dying and her going off to Paris that she signs one land contract, which was in October 1700. So she came down to London, signed this and then moved off to Paris. Uh, And, uh, you know, this document is actually in the, the Westminster archives and, and you can sort of see it. And it's in some ways a, a very ordinary kind of land contract. But the fact that it's, it's the only one that has her signature on it and that where she took agency and power of her own sort of legal status and, and determination, I think is extraordinary. Yes, absolutely. And did the status of women change at all in the following century in my head the Victorian era is always a very very bad time to have been a woman did it get better at all legally or did the law just not change women were just in the same legal situation throughout those centuries I think there's a difference between what was in the law which was always discriminatory and in some ways uh, you know and and you know kind of what what actually sort of happened I think there are always examples of sort of women throughout the 17th and the 18th century who didn't allow the law to get in their way if you like who uh, sort of found their agency found their their way of getting what they wanted uh, and this this was also true with with property and with building um i think there are enough examples just to sort of show that there is always an exception to the rule of course there's always a mrs tregonwell who's going to be getting on with things behind the scenes. Yes, yeah. And and actually sort of taking control of the estate and sort of uh, sort of changing it. You know, for somebody like a sort of a Countess Hume um who built home house and in, in the sort of 17th centuries or, or or something like that who who are doing something outside the norm. Yeah. Thank you very much indeed, Leo. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you. It's been great. That was me, Violet Moller, speaking to Leo Hollis the other day about his new book Inheritance, The Lost History of Mary Davies. Published by One World, it is available in all good bookshops now. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.